Well, good evening, everybody. So glad to see you all here. Um, let's start a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. We do uh, present ourselves as true worshipers in spirit and in truth. Father God, right now there's a lot going on in this world. Uh, there's things in the news, there's things in politics, there's things in economics, there's things in the health world that are scary, that are uncertain, that are causing anxiety, depression, worry, causing all sorts of swings and distractions, uh, because all of that is taking our attention away from you. And Father God, right now in the name of Jesus, I just pray that we can look upon you as we dive into your word, that your spirit will blind us to the things of this world, but open our eyes to the things of God. Speak through me. Give us your grace and your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, oh, okay. All right. So here we go. Story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's found in Luke chapter 16. So if you have your e-Bible or your paper Bible, uh, please open it to Luke chapter 16. Uh, and we're going to read verses 19 through 31. I personally read and teach from the ESV. But if you have the NIT, NLV, NASB, King James, awesome. Uh, but just so you can follow along, they're all on the screens. And so you can stay with us. So here we go. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sword, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm, or a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and those who may cross from there to here to us none may cross from here to us and he said then i beg you father to send him to my father's house for i have five brothers so that they may be warned lest they also come into this place of torment but abraham said they have moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father abraham but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should be raised from the dead. 
Now, now the beautiful part of this passage, it actually sits amongst about three chapters in Luke uh, 14, 15, 16, and 17. In those four chapters, there are actually 10 parables. And, and in Luke 16, Luke has grouped th- really three parables that have a lot to do with one another. And not that I, I don't have the time to get into the dishonest manager or um, the law and the kingdom, but ultimately, Jesus is teaching the people and reminding them of how these earthly pleasures can rob us of eternal glory and how easy it is for us to fall in love with the things of this world and lose heart for God. And that's the warning that we have. So the questions that we're going to ask or hopefully answer is what happens when you die? Where do you go? Is there a heaven or a hell? Are these real things or are these just bedtime stories that scare children into being morally straight? Right? If you believe that, well, if the Satan's going to get you and torment you forever, then maybe you'll be a better person. We shall see. So verse 19 says, there was a rich man. And, and we can read, and Jesus is pointing to monetary wealth. But I think we need to be careful to not pin it to just money. As Americans, we know that our economic systems runs on the dollar, right? It's, it's Benjamin Franklin's. Now, for most of us, it actually runs in plastic because we don't carry cash anymore. But in that same vein, it is on how much money someone has is based on their wealth. But in this day and age, it, it had to do with property and possessions, meaning the house, the land, the livestock, the servants, all that attributed to your wealth. But this man was fine, clothed in fine purple or fine linens and purple. Purple was a, a means of royalty. People of high esteem and honor wore purple because it was very, very expensive to get purple dye. This is the Phoenicians, ever heard of them? They were the purple people. Not the one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eaters, but the purple people. That, that, because they harvested uh, the scuttlefish from the ocean that produced the purple ink that created the dye for the clothes in which royalty would wear. So it was very, very expensive clothes. And, and for us, I know today we live in such a modern age of, of different materials, right? We have cotton, we have nylon, we have polyesters, we have synthetics, we have all range of materials. But then you really only had two things to make clothes out of. You had animal wool, so sheep or goat, camel, or you had cotton. That was it. And it t- cost a lot of money to get fine cotton, to be in nice linens, because in the summertime, it's the desert, it gets very hot, but you would also have a layer to be very cool. But this man was dressed in purple and in fine linens. And here at the end, Jesus says, and he feasted sumptuously. Now, staring at some of your plates, some of you ate real well tonight. But Jesus is pointing out that this man didn't just eat once. And Jesus actually has nothing wrong with feasting. Jesus is actually called out for being a glutton and a drunkard. The Pharisee said, you eat too much because he seemed to spend all his time eating and drinking and being at parties. And so it's not that you can't enjoy food, I think that's why God gave us taste buds and salt and Louisiana crystal sauce. (laughs) But it is that this man did it in such a means of excess 
that instead of just allowing it to be a feast or a celebration, that he ate sumptuously every day. And that's a warning because the Pharisees had this notion where they would, Jesus accused them of robbing widows' houses because they would take a large portion so that they would have their mint and their cumin and their, and their wheat and their barley and eat really well. And so Jesus also gives us these warnings. We see in Luke 18, 24, he says, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. In 1 John 2, 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. These are some of the warnings that Jesus gives us because it's, it's so easy for us to be caught up in the temporal. Now, I, I, Jesus tells us to work and to work hard. Paul says that all the work that we do should be to the honor and glory of God. So this is not saying just be lazy, because Jesus has some statements against people who are lazy. But there should be a heart that in our work, it should be for the betterment of those around us. Paul gives this warning in 2 Timothy 3.2. He says, for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy, etc. But, but I underline this idea of lovers of self. To be careful, I, I think there is a need for us to take care of ourselves. No one should harm themselves. There is no scripture that says that we should inflict self-harm. But we should take care of ourselves in a manner which is for the benefit for others. But this idea of self-love is where all you care about is that pretty face in the selfie. And how many likes you get on Instagram or how many likes you get on Facebook or whatever those other platforms are in which people God bless you, are loving themselves. They, they want to be popular. They want to be famous. They want to be known. And they trade their souls for it. And in contrast, we have Lazarus. Now, this is the interesting part of, of where, how the houses were built. Many houses were standalone units, and then they would be a wall or a gate. It wouldn't be a very tall gate. It could be four or five foot tall. It would be go around, because if you own livestock, some of your choice livestock would be in your yard. But this man probably had quite the estate. He had quite the large house. He probably had quite the yard. And he had a gate. And outside this gate, at his gate, laid a poor man. Now, I find it interesting that the poor man has a name. His name is Lazarus, which literally means God has helped. Now, I think if you read about Lazarus, that he was poor, he was invalid, and he was covered in sores, probably had leprous disease, that you would say, did God really help this man? How did God help this man? Would we not think of it to be different that he could be healed, healed of his diseases or given a place to stay or food for a stomach? Because we read that he desired to eat from the rich man's tables. He, he wanted the crumbs that kind of, kind of got dusted off. He was willing to lick the floor to eat because that's what he needed. And, and we don't know how long this man laid at his gate, but I think there's the assumption that this man laid there for quite some time. 
And day in and day out, this rich man walked and basically stepped over Lazarus to get into his house. And never once, never once did he stop and say, come and eat. I have plenty. Come and sleep, for my room is warm and dry. Come, let me bandage your wounds. Come, let me share my clothes, for I have excess. Never once did this rich man give anything to Lazarus. Dogs get a bad rap in the New Testament. They are not treated as household pets like or children in my house. But they were strays. They, they, they lived outside. No one kept them. They kept the cats away because the cats kept the rats away and the rats kept diseases away. Right? It, or the other way around. But, but dogs were, were not highly favored creatures because they ran in the garbage dunks, dumps. They were usually covered in fleas. They barked, they howled, and they ran amok. And, and so to have a mangy, dirty dog come and lick your sores and you did not have the strength to shoo them off, no less someone to have compassion on you to shoo them away, to bring you inside, inside the gate where he would at least been able to be free from the pestilence of the dogs. And it says, and the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And if you have a King James Bible or a new King James, it probably says Abraham's bosom. Uh, it was the Jewish version of paradise. Uh, th- th- this is where Father Abraham was in, in heaven, uh, along with Isaac and Jacob. But, but there was something of comfort of Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. You don't, there's not a whole lot of references in the Old Testament in regards to it. It's really only found here, but it was very common language. I actually found this very interesting. Uh, A lot of, as I read about these terms, because they're new to me, or at least they don't make sense as an American, I, I went to the Jewish Encyclopedia. And they actually give a lot in regards to these terms and these were very common terms amongst the Jewish people and have been for quite some time but this was where you would long to go is to be with Abraham we would probably call it being with St. Peter at the pearly gates does it make sense we yes we've heard that St. Peter and the pearly gates and we're getting some head nods just making sure but this is that kind of terminology Jesus is using a very similar reference to heaven or paradise and it is in Abraham side. We can see some reference here in Luke 2 or 12, sorry, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, right? This is this reference is Abraham's side is also all these men, great men of history that all the Jewish people would recognize standing there. But here's a turn. Jesus says, but you have been cast out. And you yourselves cast out. All the people have come. And this is a, a, a representation for us. We're included in this, I believe, west part. It says, then they will come from the east, the west, the north, and the south, and recline at the table, the kingdom of God. And so here again, we have this idea of laying at table. You, in the New Testament era, people didn't sit in chairs. Only Romans sat in chairs. Most Jewish people laid down. So just imagine a table about a third the size, and we're all laying on cushions, kind of like that way it's the best i got but but the people would recline at table and they would come and eat and and dine and there was a means of respect and honor that was had at that table remember the psalms 23 and you make a table in the presence of mine enemies and and so when all those who are outcasts look into heaven they see the glory of us resting with god 
I love what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It doesn't say here that this Lazarus was a Christian. He doesn't say he was an excellent Jew, but in his poorness of spirit, God gave him the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to get to more to that in a minute. And then it says, as Paul write, writes in his description of heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, 3 through 4, he says, I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Now, some 14 years prior, if you read the long portion of this section in, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about a man who died 14 years ago. Roughly about this time, Paul was stoned. Stoned to the point where they thought he was dead and they dragged him out of the city. And then he came back to life. So I don't know if he was fully dead or just unconscious, but it probably is in this moment he's describing his own transcendence into heaven. He says, I know this man that was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And that's Paul saying, I don't know, maybe it was all just my spirit moved, or maybe it was in my mind, or maybe I actually physically went, but I really don't know. God knows. And he said, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. The description of heaven is so glorious, we cannot put into words how awesome it is. Outside of the book of Revelations that describes heaven in a way of radiant color and light, gems and jewels, to, to be able to describe heaven in its purity of, of existence, I think is impossible. I, I, I find it very hard to believe anyone who said that they've been to heaven has actually been there. I, I, I struggle to, based on scripture, say that that is possible because Paul, who has probably been there himself, couldn't utter the words for what he saw. But that's a good thing. There's a good thing to know that the glory of God is so great, so majestic, that we cannot define it in earthly terms. Moving forward, we have verse 22 and 23. Now, the rich man. Now, see, it says, the rich man also died and was buried. Lazarus died and was thrown into a dump. Lazarus, the rich man was actually given an honorable burial. He was recognized by his community. They came out and wailed. They wept. They blew their trumpets. They tore their clothes. They wore sackcloths. They wept for this man who had died. But unfortunately, he did not receive that eternal glory as he did the earthly glory. For he went to Hades, an actual place. This is uh, from the Greek Gahana, G-H-E-N-A-N-A. -A. I think I'm missing an N, but it's close enough. It is a place. It is a sub-earth place. It is a place that exists. Uh, that was designed for Satan and the fallen angels. Satan himself is not the ruler of hell. Uh, you might have been told that. He might be told he was waiting there to torment you. He's not, because hell itself was a place designed for his torment and the fallen angels. It is described in Luke twelve twenty eight as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Luke uh, Mark nine thirteen is a uh, to go to hell of unquenchable fire. Right, as, as Jesus even said in Luke 16, it's a place of torment. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, what is hell in this way? He says, because you are hard and impotent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, be, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, will be grant, given eternal life. That's you and me. So for those of us who have been patient, seeking well-doing, and the glory and honor and immortality to come is eternal life. But for those who have been self-seeking and do not obey the truth and obey unrighteousness, they, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulations and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, and, but the glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, God shows no partiality. The, the, the truth here is that we sometimes want to just chalk hell up to a place that, well, it's just far from God. It might just be um, wrath or, or it might just be fire and anguish, but it's truly a place of the full judgment of God. His full wrath of his holiness poured out upon those who were disobedient to the truth. And, and that's out of God's holiness that his wrath is a constant force being poured out to all those who dwell in hell for all eternity. If you read later in, in Revelations 20, there's a description of the eternal lake of fire and all being cast in there, but I ran out of slide space. So I thought these were a well point to the point. Now here's something else. It says, and the rich man asked Father Abraham, send the Lazarus to dip his finger in the water. Could you imagine if, if the description of Lazarus was a man covered in leprous disease, that in Abraham's mind, he still saw a leper. Would you want someone covered in sores, dipping their hand in water to come give you drink? That's how desperate he was that now all of a sudden that his only source of hope was the man whom he disregarded because of his poor nature and poor health that he wanted the tip of his finger to be dipped in water to cool his tongue. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. God reigns on the just and the unjust. He is merciful to whom he will show mercy. I can't always explain because there's enough people in this room that some of us have had it really well, for the most part. I mean, we've probably faced death of a loved one, a parent, a grandparent, a sibling or a child. But some of us have had a lot harder. We've faced poverty and hunger and homelessness and addictions and diseases. Where we've been in the face of war and terror. But in all this, this is our hope. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in our afflictions, in all our afflictions, so that we, we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort that which we ourselves are comforted. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, Paul realized that his ministry was directly related to the sufferings of Christ, and his success in ministry came from that suffering. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. That there was something that was being poured into Paul and Silas and Timothy and Barnabas that they could then pour into others. 
in such a way that in the midst of their afflictions, that they could find not only comfort, but salvation, right? For if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experienced when you patiently endured the same sufferings as we have suffered. Our hope is for you that is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings. You will also share in our comforts. And so this is why we go through hard things. It's not that God puts you in bad situations just because he's malicious. God allows us through our hard situations to be ministers to people around us. That as we experience death, that we have the ability to comfort someone else going through a like situation. That, that we can point people to the hope that is in Christ because in the hard things, we found peace because of Christ. That we found salvation in Christ in our sufferings, in our heartaches, in our diseases, in our unemployment, in our brokenness. That we are able to look at someone else and say... I'm sorry, and I know how that feels. When, when we face melancholy or depression like I do, there's moments in which I can talk to someone who faces similar mental anguish and go, I kind of know how that feels and mean it with a pure heart. Not, not because I'm better or I've got it all figured out, but simply because I can relate to you that when I doubt and when I have fears and when I get caught up with my own self, that I can look at someone who's suffering and go, you know what? I'm here for you. I love you. I'm praying for you. Jesus is here with you. Jesus is here with us. That we can relate to one another on such an intimate level that it has to be the love of God that's flowing out from one and to the other. Because if that's not the case, if, if we just can ride in the comfort of all life, then how could we ever have any empathy for someone who is suffering? I, I don't wish heartache on you. I don't wish that God will neglect you of any blessings. It's not that God's not malicious and I'm not sadist. It's, it's the idea that in our lives, we will face hard things. Agreed? And everyone, I think, if you nodded your head, would say, yes, we've faced something hard. But it is in that if we have turned to Christ, that we've grasped onto him, that he has become our peace and our comfort and our joy and our love, that we are able then to take that and share it with someone else. Suffering's hard. Grief is hard. I, 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 I put this here because there, there's, it's something we all face. We face things in, in hard ways, and I think we have to embrace that in, in, in that we, we need to acknowledge it. We don't embrace it in such a way that we hold on to it for far too long that we become paralyzed, but we recognize it so that we can heal from it and that we can help someone else through it. This was a tricky one. I got to be honest. The, the, when I first pulled this up it says and besides this between you us and you is a great chasm there's no other reference in the rest of the bible of this great chasm that exists there's no real cross reference really to what jesus is describing but as i prayed through it i thought about jesus and when he said this passage 
It says, On the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for a brief moment, the Son of God realized that God the Father has turned his back. And in some translations, it says, Why have you abandoned me? I think there's a part of hell that's going to feel like emptiness. I think the great anguish is the true, the, the overwhelming sense of truly being alone for eternity. Not just the suffering, not just the flames, not just the torment, not just the, the, the gnashing of teeth, but I think this, this concept of being alone and not being in the grace of God for eternity. For Christ cried out in a moment, God, where are you? Where'd you go? I think like in Matthew 25, I won't read the whole thing, but the idea is that as the, the angels come and separate the people, the sheeps from the goats, I think in that moment as the people would begin to divide, they realize that the grace of God is no longer present. And there's now this outpouring of wrath and there is this emptiness and loneliness that comes in the darkness. Then the rich man said, and he says, Then I beg you, Father, send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that they may be war- that he may warn them, lest they come into the same place of torment. And Abraham said, They have the Moses and the prophets. And Jesus gives us these two other passages. In one Luke 10, Luke 18, it reads, And behold, a lawyer stood, put him to the test. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? Right? Jesus points to the law. Jesus up here says, Abraham, Father Abraham points to Moses and the laws. He's saying, I'm pointing to the law. And the lawyer says, what is written, or, or he says, Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and live. The promise of God for all the Jewish people was if you obey the law of God, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and all your soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you are granted eternal life. That is part of your inheritance. So this rich man didn't do it. He knew the law. If he knew the law, he would have known that his personal responsibility was to love the leper at his gate. And he ignored his neighbor. No less that he never truly loved God because he fed himself so well. He was truly a lover of self and not a lover of God. Luke 18, a ruler asked, God, or asked him, Jesus, says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother, father. And the man said, I have done all these things from my youth. And Jesus heard this and said to him, Then you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have the treasures in heaven. Come, follow me. Again, like the rich man, instead of giving of his own earthly possessions to help the poor man at his gate, he held on for himself and, and died, making no decision to follow Christ. God made a way for those prior to Christ to enter the kingdom of heaven, and that was by obedience to the law. 
And then lastly, the man says, no, if you send someone from the dead, and they will repent. And Father Abraham says, neither, if they do not believe the prophet of the law, neither will they be convinced if someone is raised from the dead. In John 5, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you may have eternal life, just like the two scriptures I read before. That is, they that bear witness about me, Christ, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, this was said prior to his crucifixion, but Jesus is definitely leading up to this. If we even go back into the law, Deuteronomy 29, 20, 29, 29, it says, The secret things of the law to the love, Lord, mm, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to the children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. Christ has revealed, God has revealed to us through the law all that we need to know for life. Here, two last two scriptures on the screens. These are actually post resurrection. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish one, how long, how slow are your hearts to believe all the prophets have spoken? This is on the road to Emmaus. If you know the story of the road to Emmaus, there's two disciples walking after resurrection. Sunday, these two men were on a walk. They were going to their hometown of Emmaus, and all of a sudden Jesus appears, but they don't know it's Jesus. They start talking on the walk, and then all of a sudden they get to a house. He breaks bread and does the Lord's Supper, and they go, didn't our hearts kindle within us that this was the love of God? This is this conversation. And this is Jesus said to O foolish ones, how slow are your hearts to believe all the prophets have spoken? And being beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them that the law, what was written, what was written in all the scriptures about himself. So even these two men were kind of on the fence. Is this Jesus real? Did Jesus really say who he was? I mean, these people walked with Jesus for three years and they go, eh, I don't know. Last verse, 28, 17. This is right before Christ is being ascended. This is right before the great, great commission. Go ye therefore into all nations, making disciples. But it says right before Christ ascended, he said these things. Or this is a, a, this is a commentary. It says, and they saw him and worshipped him, but some doubted. People who were physically face-to-face with Christ after the resurrection, after they've seen him walk through walls, after they've seen him eat, after they touched his side, they go... I don't know. The point is, is that the, the, the concept of the resurrected Christ is folly to many. We, we live in an age of intellectualism where we want to prove it by science. I got to see it. I got to touch it. I got to feel it. I got to smell it. I got to measure it. I got to duplicate it. Christ cannot be duplicated. You either see him as the truth or you reject him as it. Because even though the men standing around him, some worshiped and others stood in disbelief, going, nah, this isn't, this isn't it. He's not the Messiah. This is just some dude from Nazareth. No big deal. Last thoughts for heaven. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. But as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no heart of man can imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. That's beautiful news. That, That God has prepared something for us that we cannot comprehend. 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depth of God. I, I, I promise you, when we get to heaven, you will not be bored. You will not be flying around with a harp. You will not have wings. You will not be wearing a dress. Heaven is going to be an amazing place where we get to see God face to face, and it's going to be so miraculous and so glorious that it'd blow your mind if you could see it right now. That's going back to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. That I, so, I can't even describe it. I, I, I don't know the words. I, I truly lack the vocabulary to describe what was seen. And that's the truth. So I want to leave you with these questions. How do we respond? We need to search the scriptures with our hearts and our minds for the truth about Jesus and eternal life. That this is a practice of our lives that we dedicate ourselves to Jesus and the study of his word. Two, we need to place things in a proper position to Christ. I want you to work hard. I want you to give your best because the world thinks Christians are lazy and slackers and thieves and dishonest and dishonorable and hard to hire. We need to prove them wrong. But when we get paid well, we need to do well with our money and our possessions. And lastly, third, we need to have compassion on those around us. We, we, we have poor Lazaruses at our gate. But are we walking over them? Or are we acknowledging them? Are we taking them in? Are we clothing them? Are we feeding them? Are we tending to their wounds? Or are we just stepping over and, and feeding ourselves? Let us pray. Dearly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for all the rich truths that are found in this passage. There's a check even in my heart for how I hold things that sometimes I hold on too tight that I hold on to earthly things that distract me from the love and the presence of Jesus. Father God, I'm sorry. Lord, let me hold with an open hand all that you've given me so that I can do better, that I can have more compassion and more mercy. For I will never regret being merciful or compassionate to another. Father God, for my brothers and sisters here, I pray that you bless them. Lord, that you give them yourself, that you give them the fullness of Christ, that they might know your peace and your love and your joy. Lord, that they will go out from here in gladness and serving and loving one another. Father, I pray that we know the reality of heaven and hell. That, that we will take it seriously and not lightly and that we will contemplate your goodness and how to attain eternal life through Christ. I pray for the remainder of this time together that it's a blessing to our minds, our bodies, and our spirits. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.